0: And so our, term, termen, our sermon text this morning is Genesis chapter 27, verses 41 through to Genesis chapter 28, verse 9. Genesis 27, 41 to Genesis 28, verse 9. And before we read that, we'll pray. And so I'd ask that you join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this day and we give you thanks for your word, the Holy Scriptures. And we do pray, our Father, that you indeed would make our hearts ready and willing to receive your word for that which it truly is, the very words of God. Father, may we be given ears that hear and eyes that see and hearts that are understanding and obedient. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So Genesis chapter 27 and picking it up at verse 41. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother, in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Then Rebecca said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Chapter 28. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him. And directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite woman. Arise, go to Paddan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away and he went to Paddan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paddan Aram to take a wife from there and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite woman and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Paddan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite woman did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, beside the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Amen and may God bless his word to us. It often happens that in times of crisis and in times of troubles, then you uh, see the hand of God most clearly at work. It often happens that when people actually reach their lowest point, that in the providence of God, from there it's an upward path. God uses troubles and crises to accomplish his will in our lives and he uses even sins to accomplish his purposes. And as we saw last week, we're dealing here with a family which was in a way, sinning almost without restraint. Isaac was quite willing to play with God's plan and on the basis of who was a better cook, he wanted to transfer the promises to his favoured son Esau. Rebecca was also quite willing to play with God's plan and not to trust the Lord to bring things about according to his will. As far as she was concerned, it was perfectly okay to lie and cheat, basically to steal as it were, the blessing that Isaac had to give out. Jacob also felt that it was perfectly okay to be a cheat, to be a pretender. He clothed himself in goatskins and his brother's clothes and pretended to be someone that he was not in order to receive that same prophetic blessing. And Esau, well, Esau is Esau and he is completely unchanged. There's there's not a word in Scripture that Esau ever once thought of praying. He never once thought of perhaps on his own behalf trying to seek some relationship with God. As far as Esau is concerned, this God that his father apparently believes in is somewhat unreal And as long as he can get his father to give him the things he wants, he will have all that he needs. Esau is a man, we would say, of the flesh, completely unchanged. The scripture uses all kinds of metaphors. In the book of Ezekiel, we get the metaphor, there are those with a heart of stone and there are those to whom God gives a heart of flesh. Now, in that instance, the word flesh is not being used as a negative like it often is in the New Testament. Basically, the uh, the picture there is the heart of stone is dead and totally unresponsive to the word of God, and the heart of flesh is living in the sight of God and doing that which God created it to do. In in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul speaks of those who walk by the flesh and walk by the spirit. In that instance, the flesh is their walking according to their sinful desires. They're walking according to their own natural wants. And those who walk by the Spirit are those who have set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And how would you set your minds on the things of the Spirit other than by filling your mind with God's word and walking according to the commandments and the promises that you find in the Holy Scriptures? And so there are those who are of the flesh and those who are of the Spirit. So Esau has a heart of stone. According to the way that Ezekiel would describe the picture, Esau is walking after the flesh, according to the way the Apostle Paul would describe the picture. Esau still is seeking the blessing of his father. He's never come to God. He's never come to that point of conviction. He's never come to that point where you might say of um, seeking forgiveness. Religion in Esau's sight is the means of getting something. And what he wants is what his father can give him. He wants what Isaac can give him. And religion in Esau's sight is nothing more than a practice with an ends. He's got no respect for the religion that has been revealed. Okay, at this point in time that, that we're looking at here in the book of Genesis, What is God's revealed religion upon the earth? God has made promises to Abraham that through the seed of Abraham, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham was told to take his son to a certain place on a certain mountain and there offer him as a burnt offering. And when Abraham took Isaac to the mountain and he was prepared to sacrifice his son Isaac, God gave the substitute, the ram caught in the thicket, the substitutionary sacrifice that God would be willing to accept in place of the life of Abraham's children. And the scripture tells us, and I would think that this might well be the moment when Abraham understood, but the scripture tells us in the Gospel of John that Abraham saw the days of the Lord Jesus from afar off and he rejoiced in what he saw. And it would seem to me that Abraham understood that by God providing that substitute sacrifice, that this was pointing to something greater, that ultimately the substitute sacrifice would come, which cleansed away all the sins of all the world. Think about it. God has told Abraham that through your seed, all the nations will be blessed. And Abraham is provided with a substitute so that the life of his son Isaac continues. Isaac will indeed be the seed. Well, now Abraham sees that there is a substitute that is going to be offered that will do the same for anyone who looks to that substitute throughout the earth, throughout all the nations and tribes of the earth. He sees the days of the Lord Jesus from afar off and he rejoices in those days. And so God's revealed religion at that time is through the man Abraham and then through his son Isaac. And if you want to be a believer of that time, well, the only way, or or, let me know, let me put it another way. If you want to have salvation at that time, if you want to have eternal life at that time, Well, the way that you would do it is by making yourself a servant of the one through whom God is revealing his saving plans. And so we had Eliezer, or I assumed that it was Eliezer, for example. Eliezer who travelled to the far country in obedience to the command of Abraham to get for Isaac a wife. And we saw that Eliezer had become a faithful man, a man of prayer that everything that he did, he accompanied with prayer, trusting in the Lord, trusting in the Lord's providence and that he was guided by God's providence to find the right woman to bring back for Isaac. Eliezer himself was not the one who had the promises that through Eliezer's children, all the world would be blessed and that the Saviour would come. But Eliezer made himself the servant of the one who had the promises. And so Eliezer himself was doing what he could in obedience to the will of God to bring about that state of blessing. We come now to Esau, who now carries the blessing. And the one who carries the blessing is Jacob. And I know most of you were here last week and I'm sort of repeating myself, but it bears repeating. If Esau had actually come to saving faith, What would he do at this time other than make himself the servant of his brother who has now received the promises of God? Now that it has been revealed that the saving one, that the blessing for all the nations, that God's plan is to be unfolded through the offspring of Jacob. Well, if Esau had come to true knowledge of God, he would make himself the servant of Jacob. He would build the church, as it were, by serving Jacob. But what do we find of Esau? This completely unchanged man, if anything, this crisis, this crisis of deception, this crisis of sin reveals to us more of what he is like and what he is like is that he is a murderous and profane man a man who chases after his own lusts and a man who seeks to set up his own religion. Looking at verse 41 of Genesis 27, we see that Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, just all right, let's just stop and notice. Does he consider the providence of God? Does he consider the actions of God? No. It's not even, it's not even remotely in his thought life. I wanted something. I wanted it from my father. My father gave it to someone else. Maybe there's something I can do about it. My friends, that's not the way a believer thinks. It should not be the way that we think. We should be always aware that we are what we are because that is what God has made us. We should be always aware that we have what we have because that is what God has given us. Godliness with contentment is great gain. That's from the Apostle Paul. Godliness with contentment is great gain. What is godliness with contentment? Well, it's the fulfillment of the 10th commandment. You shall not covet. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Godliness with contentment is great gain. What has happened is according to the will of God. And Isaac has said so. Looking back at verse 33 of chapter 27, we see that Isaac trembles very violently. Remember, Isaac had set about, you know, Rebecca, Rebecca and Jacob deceive Isaac. Isaac had actually in a way set about trying to deceive God. Because God had already told Isaac and Rebecca that the older shall serve the younger. When Rebecca's... Pregnancy was troubled, and she asked as to why there is a war going on within me. God had already answered and said, There's a war within you, differing peoples will come from you, and the younger and the older, I'm sorry, shall serve the younger. They already knew what God's plan was, but Isaac had in a way attempted to deceive God. Go and get me some good food, I'm gonna lay the blessing on you. He had said to Esau. But at verse 33, when they find out that indeed the deceivers have been deceived and stop, small, just short little word of application for you, take it away. Take it away with you and think about it. Liars will be lied to, deceivers will be deceived. What you sow, you will reap. It's as simple as that. I'm not talking about karma. Forget about that. I'm talking about God and the way that he works. That which you sow, that you shall reap. That's what the scripture says. Liars will believe lies. Deceivers will be deceived. Back to what I was saying. Isaac trembled very violently. Why did he tremble? He realized God was at work here. I thought I was going to do one thing. But God has chosen to do another thing, even without my permission, even without my agreeing to it. God has done what God planned to do. That's why he was trembling. All my plans, all my hopes. I thought I was so clever. I thought I had it all worked out and nothing worked out the way I thought it would. God has done what God had planned to do. And he says, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came and I have blessed him. And then he says, yes, and he shall be blessed. (laughs) You see, he knows. He knows that the blessing that he just laid upon Jacob is the blessing of the inheritance of the promises of Abraham. Jacob's got it. He trembles violently. This is actually, I think, a life-changing moment For Isaac, this is a life-changing moment for Isaac. Isaac was a man of faith. God has appeared to and spoken to Isaac on two separate occasions that are recorded in Scripture, and we're told that Isaac was out in the fields meditating, praying, considering the promises of God, sort of include all of that, when Rebekah was brought to him by the servant. He was a man of prayer. God has revealed himself to him. God has preserved him. But... In his old age and, you know, my friends, sometimes faith is strong. Sometimes faith is weak. Sometimes we drift. It appears that Isaac drifted on the basis of food. He was willing to play with the promises of God. You know, the Apostle Paul uses the line about people whose God was their belly. And that's almost where Isaac was at, but by the grace of God. On the basis of food, he was willing to play with the promises of God. But now I think this is the second visit of grace, to put it that way. He's being called back into line. He's realised that he has not been serving the Lord his God as he ought to. He's realised that all his schemes and plans were a waste of time and energy. He's being awoken once again. But considering Esau, Esau, now this is worldly religion. Worldly religion. What do I mean by that? Well, think about the world today. There are are plenty of uh, worldly religions in the world today that would call themselves Christians, would call themselves the true church. You know, I can name some. You know, there's a few that are very prominent. There's the Jehovah's Witness. There's the Mormons. They would call themselves Christians. They would call themselves the true church. There's there's a Spanish-speaking church that calls itself the Church of Christ. Now, I'm I'm, I'm not um, speaking now of that older denomination that you might call the Campbellites, which is also prominent in Australia, but there's another church coming, I think it comes out of the Philippines and the Spanish-speaking regions of, of the Philippines, and they call themselves the Church of Christ, and they're basically Jehovah's Witness with a Filipino flavour. Haters of... The doctrine of the Trinity, teaching lies, dragging people into cults. If um if you happen to drive along um, Pennant Hills Road in Sydney, there's one of their churches there. It's on the northern side of the road. Big Spanish sign out the front. White building, lots of money spent on it. And they would imitate the church and they would claim to be the church and they would claim to be the true church. Well, look at Esau. This completely unchanged man. Isaac realises that all my plans and manipulations come to nothing and the will of God is going to be done. And Esau just wants to keep trying. Somehow or other, I'm going to make this work. Somehow or other, I'm going to get back what it is that I gave away. Remember, he sold his birthright for some red stuff, food. I'm going to get it back. Somehow or other, I'm going to get Isaac to change his mind. You see, he doesn't see it that this is the will of God. As far as he's concerned, everything has happened because of Isaac. Isaac changed his mind. Jacob tricked Isaac. If I can get Isaac to change his mind again, maybe, maybe I can have whatever it is that Isaac has to give. Completely worldly in his thinking. And so when he sees that his brother Jacob is sent away with the blessings and noticing in chapter 28 that Isaac repeats and expands the blessings that have been laid upon Jacob. When his brother Jacob is sent away with the blessings to find a wife, Esau thinks, you know, worldly religion. Hmm, you know, uh, okay, so they don't like these couple of ladies that I've married. They're not really happy about them. And they've sent Jacob away to find a relative. Well, I can find a relative. I'm related to Ishmael. And Ishmael's got plenty of wives and plenty of daughters. I'll go see Ishmael and get myself a wife over there. And maybe then they'll be happy with me. The world loves to imitate the truth whilst keeping people blinded by lies. Do you ever wonder, like, Look at the world around about us today. Look at the madness of what is happening in terms of laws and legislation, okay? It's starting to happen even worse here in Australia. It's happening very badly in some places around the world. You know, think of the nation of Sri Lanka. I don't know if you're up to date with any of the world news, okay? The Sri Lankan farmers were basically told, do not use any chemical fertilisers. Banned. Finished, zero, no chemical fertilizers, none whatsoever. This had two impacts on the nation of Sri Lanka in particular. One, their premium export crop, which is tea, the production of that crop dropped below 50% of what it used to be. So they no longer have something to sell on the world market to bring in currency with which they could buy other things from the world market. They no longer had something to sell or export. The other thing that happened is that the rice crop dropped by 50%. Now, when you're an island nation with millions of people and the staple food is rice and the rice rice harvest is cut by 50% due to a government policy, what do you get? You get millions of hungry people. Millions of hungry people. And if you don't know it, you need to read a little bit of history. But what happens when you get millions of hungry people is you get millions of angry people. And then millions of angry people start to do something about their hunger and start to put the blame on whoever they think is responsible for their hunger. And that's what's happened in Sri Lanka. Now, here's the thing, getting this back to where I'm uh, trying to go here. Ask those who decided on these policies why they are doing it, and what you'll get from them is basically religious talk. We're saving the world. We're saving the world for future generations. What we are doing is righteous, even if you ignorant plebs don't understand. We are saving the world, therefore everything that we do is righteous and if a few people have to starve to death, what of it? I saw a comment online. A Canadian farmer posted what would be the result of government policies that are about to be implemented in Canada regarding food production. And some poor little driveling brainwashed fool puts in his replies, Well, I'd rather not eat a lamb chop than see the world destroyed. Really? Really? We'll see how you go when you haven't had a decent feed for three or four weeks and see if that's still your answer. But why did he say that? What was he doing? Virtue signaling. You see, I'm righteous. You see, I really care. You see, I'm willing to sacrifice for the future. Religious talk. It's religious talk. If you want to know why it is that those who are the enemies of what you would call normal life at this moment are so active and so motivated and so blinded, it's because it's a religious commitment. It's a messianic commitment. They think they're saving the world and they think that makes them righteous and they think, therefore, that nothing that they can do could be wrong and that anybody who disagrees with them must be evil. Remember messianic delusions. The true Messiah, the Lord Jesus, he said, there are those who are for me and anyone who is not for me is against me. When someone is under messianic delusion, They divide the whole world into those who agree with me, they're right, and those who don't agree with me, they're evil. They're fools. They're morons. Religious talk. Worldly religious talk. We're so righteous we can do no wrong. Even if it means people starve to death, we're so righteous we can do no wrong. It's not that different to Esau. The man who has the promises, the man who now has the blessing of the true religion is Jacob. And Jacob's told, don't take a wife from among the Canaanites. Separate yourself from them. Don't mix in with the world around about you. Don't be like them. And Esau says, well, I can work an imitation of that. I can be righteous in my own eyes. I can make this thing work out. I can procure some kind of blessing for myself. I'll go get myself a daughter from among the Ishmaelites. After all, they're relatives to us. They're not Canaanites. And off he goes. The world putting up this poor and ridiculous imitation of the truth. You know, I'll use another phrase, fig leaves. What are fig leaves? What do we need as sinners in the presence of God? We need a covering. We need the right kind of covering. We need the covering of the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. What do Adam and Eve go for in their sin? Fig leaves. Sew fig leaves together. That'll be our covering. Esau, unchanged, completely unaware of the workings of God, completely unconvicted of his sins, utterly and totally pragmatic. He thinks that he can get what he wants by imitating in some way Jacob. False religion. False religion. If he had true faith, as I said, he would submit to Jacob. That's what he would do. That would be the works that that accompanied his faith, submitting to Jacob and doing all that he can to build the church. That's Esau. Unchanged, left in his sins. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated if you're unchanged and if you're left in your sins. My friends, does God love you? Well, it depends what you mean. It really depends what you mean. God loves the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And Jesus speaks of how his father loves even the wicked because he gives them rain in its season. He gives them food in its time. God runs the world so that even the wicked can live a life in his world, but that's not saving love. God loves the world in that if people were honest, if people were willing to be true, true to themselves and true to that which is around about them, they could look at this world and look at this creation that we live in and see that it was created by God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. God signs his own creation so that anyone who was truly willing could look at this creation and see the signature of God and know that there is a God. But people would rather blind their eyes to it. God keeps speaking. God loves the world. But to say that God loves the world is not to say that God intends to save every person therein. And it never did mean that. God is under no obligation to save sinners and never has been under an obligation to save sinners. He saves whom he will. He saves whom he wishes to save. He loves in an especial way, in a way that involves personal relationship, those whom he wants to love in that special way. Jacob, I have loved. Esau, I have hated. That's what God says. And that's what God says about the world. So let's look at Isaac. We've spent most of our time looking at Esau. Let's look a little at Isaac. Isaac gives evidence of having been once again changed. A person who is saved is saved. If a person who is saved drifts off the path, the good shepherd will catch them and bring them back again. I don't know if you've ever read The Pilgrim's Progress, but I read it pretty much every year. I I love the book. I just... Take it into myself about every year. And um, in the pilgrim's progress, as Christian walks on his way to the celestial city, on his way to the kingdom, there are times when he gets off the path and God gets hold of him and drags him back. There was one particular point where he was told not to venture onto enchanted ground. And yet he ventured onto enchanted ground and he was told not to speak to anyone who is a deceiver. Yet he spoke to a deceiver and he listened to the deceiver and he ends ends up caught in a net, in a trap, stuck there, no escape. But God came and rescued him. God came and rescued him, brought him back to the way. But just remember this also, because I don't know if you've read the book, but there's something happens. Questions are asked. Were you told not to venture onto enchanted ground? Yes, I was told. Were you told not to speak to deceivers and listen to them? Yes, I was told. Well, why didn't you do what I told you to do? Here's what you do now. Lay on the ground. And when he had laid on the ground, it says he took a stick or a cane and gave him a good beating just to teach him the foolishness of his ways. The discipline of God. It's loving discipline. But you see, here's the thing. He doesn't discipline those who are not his own. He doesn't impose that kind of discipline on those who are not his own. He disciplines the ones he loves. He drags them back into the way and he disciplines them. He disciplines us. God brings Isaac back into the way. I'm I'm making much of the fact that Isaac trembled very violently. Isaac trembled very violently when he realised, you know what? All my plans come to nothing. God has done whatsoever God planned to do. And it turns out I could do nothing about it. Because when we look at what Isaac does after this moment, things change. The relationship between Rebecca and Isaac is such that Isaac is listening to what his wife has to say. At verse 46, then Rebecca said to Isaac, verse 46 of Genesis 27, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? And Isaac now, like a man of true faith, you see, he does what he ought to do. He, he responds as a man who cares about the promises of God. Isaac called Jacob and blessed him. And directed him. I think it's really important that he blessed him again. Why? Well, the accusation might be that the first blessing that he laid upon his son Jacob at verse 27 and down to verse 29 in chapter 27, that first blessing, maybe that wasn't the real blessing because after all, Jacob and Rebekah, they were cheating and scheming and Isaac didn't know what he was doing. But look at it this time. Isaac calls Jacob. And blessed him and directs him. Suddenly now Isaac is acting like the head of the household of God. This is what he should be doing. Even if he's losing his eyesight, he shouldn't be sitting around, lazing around and saying, Bring me the food I like. Okay? That's not what we're called to do, my friends. We get one day of rest in seven. We don't just lay around waiting for the food to come to us on a platter. He's finally acting like a man of God who is at the head of the household of God. And so he calls Jacob and he blesses him. This is a knowing, conscious blessing. There's no deception. This is a deliberate, conscious blessing. This is Isaac saying, I understand. Jacob, as Rebecca and I were told years ago, the older shall serve the younger. It is upon you that the promises of God rest and therefore I, as a servant of God, must bless you because included in those promises is whoever blesses you, I will bless. That's what God has said. And whoever curses you, I will curse. That's what God has said. Isaac himself is now an example of someone having true faith and seeking to build the church according to God's revelation. He has true faith. He understands that the blessing for the nations will come through Jacob and he acts accordingly. And so he gives the instruction, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Go to your mother's household. He actually takes some decisive action. You know, remember earlier in his life, there were troubles over water and troubles over wells and troubles in foreign nations. And it just seemed that, all Isaac wanted to do was retreat, back away, retreat, retreat, retreat. Didn't want, to, uh, didn't want to exert himself in any way. Well, now he exerts himself. He gives orders. He blesses. Verse 3, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. He consciously, openly acknowledges that Jacob is now the man whom God has chosen to lay his blessings upon. And he ensures through his actions the continuity of God's promises. He ensures through his actions that God has, that God's plan will come to pass. Now, you you, you all know it. All right, I'm in terms of doctrine, Calvinistic. I'm not scared of the label. You want to call me a Calvinist? Call me a Calvinist. I don't hate the label. It doesn't bother me. I know that God can do whatsoever he pleases, whether or not anyone obeys him. All right, if, if God wants to convert, you know, unknown Joe Smith, somewhere over there in the town right now at this moment, if God wants to hit him with the bolt of spiritual lightning that changes that person from one thing to another in an instant, God can do it and he doesn't need anybody's help to do that. But here's what I also know. In the scripture, God has chosen to accomplish things through his faithful servants. The normal means of a person being converted is that someone who is in the faith, shares the truth with someone who is not in the faith and God takes that sharing of the truth, that sharing of the gospel and makes it powerful and effective and converts the one being witnessed to. That's God's usual way of doing things. God's usual way of doing things is that God's people act in obedience and God makes it work. We speak in obedience, we pray in obedience, we act in obedience and God makes it fruitful. And Isaac now wishes to act in obedience. And he wishes to be fruitful. And he wishes to ensure that the promises of God and the continuity of those promises all the way through to the coming savior, the promised one. Remember Isaac, he's only alive because God put a substitute in his place. Imagine that. You're on, you're on the, um, you're on the bed of sticks. You know, a great pile of wood and you're tied to it. And your father is about to cut your throat and then he's going to set fire to the wood. And not only did your father look and see the substitute ram, but you yourself, the one who was to die, you look, you see the substitute and you understand that there is salvation because God sends a substitute. Isaac now does all that he can to ensure that this work of God is done. All right, this has application for you and I, my friends. Jesus will build his church. He didn't say that a person will build his church. He said, I will build my church. But my friends, the regular way that he goes about the business of building his church is through using and blessing the obedience of his people. That is just simply the fact. He doesn't do it that way because he has to do it that way. He does it that way because he chooses to do it that way. And so, my friends, it is for us to ensure the blessings of the nations. It is for us to work towards the building of the church. It is for us to be the people who share the truth with the world around about us. Because that's what we're commanded to do. And that is his plan. That all the nations of the world will be blessed. That the gospel will be preached in all the nations of the world. That all the nations of the world will be made to glorify the king. And the gospel proceeds victorious throughout the nations. Utterly victorious. Do you understand and believe that? The gospel is utterly victorious. I want you to look at um, some scripture in Second Corinthians Chapter 2, Second Corinthians chapter 2. Reading from verse 14, Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. The victory of the gospel is not that a soul is converted. The victory of the gospel is not that a soul is converted. The victory of the gospel is that it is is the means by which God separates the wheat from the chaff. It is the means by which God separates the goats from the sheep. It is the means by which God gives life or confirms death. The victory of the gospel is that wherever it is preached, it is accomplishing the purpose of God. Always, always whether there are converts or not. Do I want to see converts? I'm telling you, yes, I do. Would I love to see a Great Awakening style revival? Absolutely. Definitely. But I don't want you to think that the gospel is failing or that the gospel is without power. Where the truth is proclaimed, where God's word is proclaimed, it accomplishes the purposes of God in all circumstances, At all times. If hearts are hardened unto death, if people are like Esau left in their original state, this is according to the will of God, and the truth that is revealed to them is a fragrance from death to death. They will not accept the truth, they will not submit to the will of God, they will not have faith in the Lord, they will not seek salvation, and they are left where they are i.e. they are left in the muck, in the mire, in the pit of sin. And basically they are hardened in their sin. And to those whom God is calling, well, it's a fragrance from life to life. They're being called to salvation. They're being granted life. They're being made alive in the Lord Jesus Christ. I make one other point. As I tell you this, that doesn't mean that we actually have the right to judge. That doesn't mean that we have the right, for example, to write someone off. Well, they heard the gospel. They didn't believe. They're finished. It doesn't work that way. Okay, I can think of someone in my life. I prayed for that person's salvation for 30 years, and it took 30 years before God answered the prayer. And I tried on many an occasion to share the truth with them. You never know. You never know how God is working. You never know what he's doing with his word. You never know how slowly that light might be dawning, but it may well be dawning. The decision is not ours. We don't choose to say, well, that one will be saved. That one won't be saved. Therefore, that one is condemned to hell. And that one, I'll put, my, I'll put all my work and my effort into that one. It doesn't work that way, my friends. That's not what the scripture has said. We share the good news. We leave the rest up to God. We can pray, we can preach, we can love, we can help in any practical way we possibly can, but in, in the end, the harvest, it comes from God. Always it comes from God. And this is to the glory of God and this is the triumphal procession of the gospel throughout the earth. In every nation where it is preached, it conquers. In every nation where it is preached, it conquers. It conquers by calling God's elect out from the mass of humanity, out from the flesh of Adam, out from the wickedness of the world around about. It conquers by calling those to salvation whom God has chosen to save. And at the same time, it conquers by condemning to death those who refuse to submit to the good news. And so the gospel is always victorious, always. And so in the life of Esau and the life of Isaac, We see this at work. Esau, exposed to a godly family all of his life, exposed to the knowledge of the promises of God all of his life, completely unchanged. Still a man of the flesh, not a man who's ever given himself to prayer, a man who in his heart is willing to murder his brother. In um, Genesis 27, verse 41, the ESV reads, that Esau said to himself, well, I think your version might say Esau said in his heart, much closer to what's written. Esau said in his heart, he purposed with his heart. In other words, he had made this solemn resolution that he was going to kill his brother. He made this resolution from the heart that he was going to commit murder. The promises meant nothing to him. And because he would not receive them, he was given over to his wickedness and became ever increasingly wicked, more wicked. Jacob, Jacob, the ankle biter, Jacob, the, the schemer, the deceiver, the plotter. But goodness me, he believed the promises. And all he wanted was to be the recipient of God's blessing. And he wanted fellowship with God, even in his sin. You see, that's God calling. That's the victory of the promises. One called to life, one called to death. Or I should say one sent to death. That's Esau. And my friends, that's the way it works to this very day. The world has its false and artificial religions and its attempts to imitate the truth. But the truth is that only Jesus Christ is Lord, that there is salvation in no other, that there is cleansing of sin in no other way other than putting your faith in the substitute that God has appointed And that one is Jesus. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, once more, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you have made yourself known to us in words that can be understood. We thank you, Father, for the victory of the gospel. And we praise you that our saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the substitute that he is the one that took the death that we deserve in order that we may receive as a blessing, as a gift, the life that he deserved. We thank you and we praise you, our Father, that through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we have eternal life. And we pray, our Father, that you would enable us to preach this truth to all around about, near and far. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.